0: Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy graziani Fossbinder, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I am so happy today to welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Laura Talmas. Now, Laura came to me in a way that guests are now beginning to come to me, which is that somebody, a listener, a past guest, an acquaintance, somebody calls her, Taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, there's somebody you need to talk to, and Laura is one of those people. Following the unexpected and tragic death of their daughter, Lily Rachel Smith, in October of 2009, Laura Thomas, along with her husband, Avril, known as Ace Smith, founded Beyond Differences. Passionate about bringing awareness to the issue of adolescent social isolation, Laura is the full-time executive director of Beyond Differences. It's a student-led social justice organization dedicated to ending social isolation among middle school students. Beyond Differences' social-emotional learning curriculum is now used in over 9,000 schools across 50 states. They're best known for the national holiday no one eats alone. Oh, just That gives me a little shivers, I have to say. The work of Beyond Differences strives to have an effect on every layer of society when it comes to suffering from social isolation, working with families, schools, local and state programs, and even on the national level. This nonprofit organization works to advance social emotional learning and children's mental health. Laura is the recipient of many, many, prestigious and amazing awards that you can read about on our website, themorninggloryproject.com. She and her husband, Ace, live in Marin County, California, neighbors of mine, though we haven't crossed paths yet. I hope we will. And they have a son, Abram, and a daughter-in-law and beautiful grandchildren, I know, of whom they're quite proud. Laura Talmas, thank you so much for giving of this time, and welcome to The Morning Glory Project.
1: Thank you, Betsy. It's an honor to be here. Thank you.
0: So Laura, tell me about your life before 2009 and how that led to where you are now.
1: Yes. Well, I won't go through too much of the detail, but just suffice to say, um, I've lived a wonderful, wonderful life. I was born and raised in New York City, uh, migrated out to uh, The San Francisco Bay Area after college, uh, following my older sister, who I used to follow no matter where she went, I seemed to always be uh, paddling behind her. And this was a great move nearly 45 years ago. I met my husband through politics. We both met working at City Hall in San Francisco, where we were lucky enough to cross paths as colleagues for the then president of the Board of Supervisors. Um, So we both grew up. Loving politics and being involved in politics. My husband is still a political consultant and strategist. And I developed an expertise for fundraising before I even knew there was such a career. Because
0: politics seems to equal fundraising, right?
1: It does. (laughs) Unfortunately, it is the system uh, that we have. And in order to ensure Uh, Candidates and issues are passed that reflect our values, it costs a lot of money uh, to run for office or to promote an issue. So I'm comfortable with the system we have. Um, I believe in it. I'm passionate about those who I believe are our public leaders. And not surprisingly, I guess, in terms of my career, I was able to take my fundraising skills and and use them towards progressive uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, social justice organizations, um, and as well as electoral candidates and politics in general. It was there that I sharpened my skills for what was going to become the next chapter of my life, which is running beyond differences. And so how we got here is probably another question that you'd be interested to know about.
0: Well, so yes, that's exactly where we're going. So often our professional endeavors or our philanthropic endeavors spring from a personal awareness. So tell me about your your family right in 2009, what it was like and right before that, and what prompted you to start this organization?
1: It is so fascinating how we choose what to dedicate our lives to and what is it that really brings that spark to us, whether caused by pain or caused by uh, commitment or obligation or some way of giving back? If everyone did that, I think we would have an enormous civil society that's even bigger than what we have right now, which is pretty terrific. But in our family situation, uh, we were blessed to have a son that was born in 1990. As you mentioned in the intro, Abram is now 31, going on 32. And he's married with two grandchildren, with two children right now. And then we also welcomed our daughter, Lily, about three and a half years later. Uh, Much to our surprise, Lily was born with a cranial facial syndrome words I had never heard before. And the specific name of her syndrome is called Apert, A-P-E-R-T, also named for the scientist who discovered uh, the certain constellation of um, developmental problems that happened when Lily was in utero. This is not a disease. Apert syndrome is really a collection of malfunction pathways that happened when Lily was developing. And so Mm -hmm when she was born it manifested in some pretty obvious ways one was that her uh, uh the soft bony uh, sutures in her head that normally collapse as a child is going through the birth canal, they were fused prematurely in Lily's case. So they had to be surgically corrected when she was newborn. Mm -hmm. Number two, her fingers and her toes were a little fused together. And that was the first clue that I had that there was something wrong. Because when they put your newborn baby on your chest, you know, the first thing I noticed was these little mitten hands that she had. Yeah. The next morning we received the diagnosis that Lily had Apert syndrome. And from that point on, it was almost like strap on your seatbelt. We had no idea what to expect, how we were going to get through this, what it meant. But I can tell you one thing, Betsy, the very first thing I asked was, is this life threatening? And every doctor said no. Right. So we did what any good, amazing loving parents and family would do. We just decided to just throw ourselves into um, taking care of Lily and providing for her the best that we could. And that was in 1994.
0: So here you are, you have a new baby and you learn this, you know, everyone has the dream of what their new baby is going to be. And you've already achieved that already. You had a son who was healthy, I presume. Yes. And uh, I hate the word normal, but without other challenges. Yep. And so and then here you are now she had a, it's a cranial facial disorder challenge but it expressed itself in other ways too hands other other kinds of things. So what did this mean for her development? Did it mean that she was conspicuous in her
1: appearance or yes, very much so? So what we did medically was Obtain the best, uh, the best surgeries and the best surgeons and the best advice that we could. So throughout Lily's life, they had recommended staged surgeries that would allow for her brain and her normal development to happen. That was unquestionably a blessing to live near institutions such as UCSF and other uh, medical centers. So on the one hand, that was challenging to go through all the medical issues. But on the other hand, you just put your faith in these children and they are so resilient. And so Lily was such a happy little baby that no matter what she seemed to be going through, um, she would wake up every day and just be like this beautifully, beautiful little child. So we were madly in love, but yes, we dealt with all the medical challenges the social challenges really didn't really manifest themselves. I mean, clearly, little children at the playgrounds would stare at her a bit in the stroller and what's the matter? And her big brother would sort of say, hey, you know, that's my sister. You know, lots of families go through this, Betsy. Lots and lots and lots of families go through this. With
0: whatever kinds of physical challenges they, they might
1: Absolutely. have. You know, I will say to you that at the end of the day, I'm sure other parents, despite the hardship and the pain and the worry, you become such better parents when you have a child with special needs. There's just another gear that kicks in where you are not only a warrior parent or mom in my case, but a fabulous, open-hearted, spirited, loving, compassionate person that has to welcome everyone with differences, whether it's other children or your own child. And then you begin to explain those differences to other children who are curious. So there's a path that unfolds in front of you that you just walk.
0: And you figure it out kind of one day at a time, I'm guessing, as you learn these things. It also strikes me, particularly when you have a child who's, whose condition is conspicuous to others, that, that it it, can, it affords you an opportunity to connect in an intimate way, but it, but it also, I, I can imagine under some circumstances that that made Lily, did it make Lily uncomfortable? Did she, as she grew a little older, as she got, you know, past elementary school when kids might be a little more accepting, because I noticed that your focus is on middle school years. Tell me a little bit about that and how, how it expressed in terms of social life for her and for your family.
1: So for uh, her early childhood, as you indicated, no, no differences were noticed among the children that she grew up with nor among herself. We treated her just like we treated our son. He treated his little sister just like he would expect any big brother. He forced her to go out and play basketball and run laps around the block and do things she never wanted to do, but she did it anyway. She went to Montessori. She went to our public elementary school system. Everything was great. And in middle school, we began to notice that as most children in adolescence sort themselves out, discover their own identities – find their friend group. Uh, Lily began to experience what it felt like today to to know what it is to be socially isolated. Mm. We had no words for that. Fifth grade, Sixth grade. By the beginning of seventh grade, it was clear that Lily was really feeling very low about herself. And I was running my own company, uh, and would often get phone calls during this during the day from Lily, uh, begging me to come back to our home community and pick her up and bring her home.
0: So your happy, adaptable, resilient little girl started to feel the impact of her of, of being different.
1: Absolutely, and this went on for a little while until we decided as a very difficult decision, which no family should have to be faced with. And economically, 99% of our families cannot do. We pulled our child out of uh, public school and had her finish seventh and eighth grade, which is the core of middle school uh, with a very tough, rigorous homeschool teacher. But it was really to get her more focused on her academics and not so worried about who was and wasn't inviting her to lunch at the cafeteria, which is why we developed No One Eats Alone Day as our signature program. So then you
0: say, in, in, and I read in your introduction, that Lily's passing in 2009, and she was, what, 15, I think? Yes. So her passing was quite unexpected. And because you'd told you'd been told of course that her condition was not a life threatening condition, so this i'm I can only imagine well loving a child and losing her that that's a tragedy and after that you about how long after that did you decide to begin what am I looking for organizing as opposed to sort of acting in, on behalf of your child and your small community, sort of making your impact bigger. What what went into that? And and, and how was it that Lily passed? What what was the...
1: Well, I, I think that you're asking a uh, great question, and I appreciate that because it, it references my earlier comment about you never know what that spark is going to be that really sets off. Um, Lily did pass away in her sleep, Uh, when she was in uh, freshman year of high school, seven weeks after she chose to go out of town to an out-of-state residential boarding school um, that was a college preparatory uh, part of the Quaker Friends School network, if you will, across the United States. And she picked one in the Midwest that had a focus on social justice and community service because she was a very passionate, politically active Uh, you know, warrior, if you will, for causes uh, that people had of their own because of the way she felt different. She wanted to get to know others and she wanted to experience what their challenges were and relate to them. And so not surprisingly, but to my chagrin, she decided to go to an out of state boarding school. And somewhere in the seventh week of her being away, um, she passed in her sleep. Mm -hmm. To your point, it was unexpected. It was a tragedy. And it was um, the worst thing that could ever happen to a parent or a family. At her memorial service back here in our community of Marin, um, I gave a eulogy about why Lily had left middle school a couple of years earlier and why she had chosen to not go to a local high school, but instead to go out of town. And it was a few of the families, one in particular sitting in the audience, uh, that heard my remarks and went home that night and had a private discussion about... Whether the child who was themselves only in ninth grade remembered Lily leaving middle school, and did they have any reason to remember why they did or didn't include Lily in their af- activities? you know the mom of that child relayed this to me over dinner a few weeks later and i was so struck by the fact that she heard what i said in a non-judgmental non-accusatory way but just matter-of-factly asked her son about this and that was the child that came to me a few months after lily passed away and said we would lo- i would love to do something to honor lily it was not my idea <laughs> and this is something i tell people all the time you don't wake up after losing a child it at least I did not, and decide that I had nothing better to do except start a new nonprofit. It was the impetus from the children that were in the audience of her memorial service that had grown up with Lily. This is why we became a student led organization. I am not a genius. I did not construct this. The construction was made by the children themselves who reached out to me, and I was astute enough. And loved them enough and loved my daughter enough to feel that there might be something that we could do together. And the first thing we did, and then I'll pause for a moment and let you ask a couple of questions, was to get (laughs) the permission of the principal where they had all gone to middle school and find out if we could go back and present an assembly program with the children uh, that Lily knew uh, herself in the front of the audience, not me, but the kids talking to other kids. And I stood there watching the response from the children in the audience, realizing it wasn't just Lily who felt this way. You may not look different. It may not be obvious, but there are children all over our country and all over our community who come to school every day feeling as if they're invisible They don't feel like they connect with others. They don't feel a sense of belonging and their identity is not appreciated and recognized. And I can't think of anything more painful in life than feeling as if you are uh, not fitting in or not feeling as if not fitting in can be accepted and celebrated.
0: Well, we're social creatures, even even the introverts among us. We have our need to connect to others what what inspires me about the story you just told Laura and I didn't know that part is that simply telling the story of what happened to Lily even at her memorial connected that story to other people again not in a finger-waggy scoldy kind of a way but just stating the fact of what uh, the facts of what went on I'm just a believer in telling the stories that we live and that it connects people to what we do. And then you have, you say, I'm not a genius, but you're kind of a genius to think, to, to be without ego enough to recognize that this, if it was student led, it was going to be able to be more palatable than yet another mom standing in front of yet another group of kids telling them what they ought to be doing. So there's something quite genius about, about employing that as a strategy and a philosophy, really, that is really quite moving. So in essentially, in Lily's memory, inspired by her life, her social justice ideas, and her loss, uh, you began this work. And so tell me about what uh, Beyond Differences does. So I see that it's a student-led deal, but and tell me about that No One Eats Alone Day. I love that. It's
1: it's it's grown. We are a very nimble uh, nonprofit organization that responds astutely to what's happening in the world, and we're able to do that because we are private, and my husband and I, as I mentioned, had come from a political background, and so we were able to apply some of the strategies of how to uh, engage voters or engage others, stakeholders to come along with you. So we were able to do that for beyond differences as well, except learning how to speak in the realm of education. So it has been a learning curve for me. I did not have any background, um, In education, and here I am finding myself running uh, a very large and 13 year old organization at this point, squarely um, as a partner with education um, schools and institutions all over the United States. We were the first in the country, Betsy, to identify this issue of social isolation as a public health crisis for youth. It is true that we all understand social isolation today. We've just come through two and a half years of a brutal pandemic. We know, as you said, that connection is a um, fundamental part of Maslow's hierarchy of of living, which is underneath air and water uh, and food, is uh, connection. So we're we're on the right path. Um, The issue is, where do we find the kids showing up and having the most trouble. And outside of the fact that social media is now another factor that follows children around the 24-hour clock, mostly it's during the school day that kids are really feeling uh, disconnected from one another, and that's where we found that we could meet them where they are. The background is that teachers were asking us for more than the assembly programs that I mentioned got us started. We began to develop an idea for a club, that middle schoolers could create for themselves in, in school, in the school day, the clubs took off. We developed this idea of no one eats alone as a holiday, uh, because of Lily's experience. And because she was calling me every day from the girl's bathroom hiding and Mm -hmm. mom, you need to come get me right now. So no one eats alone became a signature program of ours. Um, We now are an incredibly sophisticated organization with 13 full-time staff, including uh, PhDs and others um, who are social-emotional learning experts, who are curriculum experts, who are educators, who are champions of education reform and youth leadership developers. And so, Here's the bucket of work that we do. We have curriculum that we provide free of charge to teachers all over the United States. All you need to do is sign up on our website and you become part of our family. And we export everything that's new and current the moment it's off the presses. We wrap around the school year with a fall program called Know Your Classmates. We have the winter program called No One Eats Alone. And we deal with the advent of social media and its harm on children's social isolation uh, in the spring called Be Kind Online. We also do training for educators now. We have professional development workshops all over the United States from New York City to Dallas, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, and everything in between. We also have a very robust youth leadership program. We started with youth, we are doubled down on our youth, and we have a national high school teen board of directors that was started uh, by those scrappy little kids that came with me to that very (laughs) first assembly. And here we are 13 years later, Those little children are now full grown adults and they're sometimes coming back to speak with me at conferences and uh, to the new group of kids that are coming into the program today for the first time. So it's really become quite a large enterprise. And I also work very rigorously at the state and federal level on public policy to advance the issue of social isolation as a public health crisis as well as to get social and emotional learning in the schools, uh, because we are no longer uh, luxuriously able to focus on academics without understanding the toll that mental health has taken on children before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and as we emerge from the pandemic. So it's all wrapped up.
0: You were set up for this before, and, you know, the words coronavirus were <laughs> w- was even in anyone's awareness. And so uh, I have two things that I want to ask. I want to ask a little bit more about not only the pandemic and how, you know, I think that so many of us with loved ones and with kids uh, got painfully aware of, how, of the effect of social isolation and how that, particularly as kids were, stuck <laughs> and, and through no power of their own. So we, we, there's that, there's the pandemic issue. And then there's also this, the social media uh, factor, you say, exacerbated. You, one would think if one were naive, one would think that Gee, for a socially isolated kid, social media could be an extra boost. That could be cool. That's a way for a kid that might be a little off or a little peculiar or a little socially awkward or whatever it might be. That might be their way into having a society or whatever. That isn't what largely happens, though. Can you tell me about what you see as the impact of social media on kids in, in respect to with respect to social isolation?
1: it it is mixed betsy you're absolutely right to point out that teachers have reported that children that are tend to be quieter and not quite as participatory in class discussions actually felt better behind the camera and were able to really blossom and come out and do well in school academically. So there is absolutely that. There is also the connection piece uh, using social media to stay in touch with friends to create games online to create art projects and journal writing and workshops All of that is true. This is the world that we live in now, and the kids that are in our program have grown up in the digital age. So there's no question screens are a fact of life. The part that we take on is not being preachy, as you've talked about earlier. We don't wag our fingers. We understand that uh, social media is a fact of life. What we do is we try to call out ways in which children may not be aware that their behavior online causes others to feel socially isolated. It could be small, innocuous things by not tagging somebody's name in a photograph. Um, I'm making up the most basic ways that kids could feel like they were left out. But those things hurt. They create physiological responses. And if enough of those uh, negative triggers uh, occur, a child could really constantly be in a state of trauma around not being liked, not being accepted, not being included. Well, to say nothing,
0: that it can also go the route of, of bullying and those kinds, of, you know, it can, it can go in an extreme way too.
1: We've taken on social media companies that have created platforms that allow for anonymous bullying and teasing that is incredibly hurtful and irresponsible. And so we've done a lot of activism in our organization to take that on. Mostly, though, we're not, we're not the organization like one of the other ones I think is the best in the world is Common Sense Media, who rates and helps parents understand what their kids should or should not be watching. We don't do that. What we do is try to connect the dots between social isolation and social media, social isolation and screen time. And we teach children how to recognize those signs and uh, navigate around them differently if they had the tools and the training to do that. So we're very clear about that. Yeah.
0: So in, in our moments remaining, I, I want to ask a more personal questions, which are, I think of two things, certainly raising a child that has special needs or challenges, losing that child, and running this nonprofit organization doing what you do. What, what are the tough parts? What, what is hard for you? And how do you get through that? How do you get through the times that are overwhelming or discouraging or or painful?
1: Um, Thank you for asking that. You know, Lily's been gone for 13 years, and yet I have chosen to painfully relive her life with me minute to minute of my day job now. And in one sense, it has healed and kept me close to her so that I resist the urge to bury Lily's memory with so much scar tissue, which would be easier in some respects because it's not so painful to forget. I chose a different path. The grueling part of this path is watching Lily on video, hearing Lily's voice and watching Lily as an alive person wondering what she would be like right now. Mm-hmm. And as a mom, um, it's just the most excruciating thing to relive Lily as if she was a hologram except there she was captured on film and I watch them all the time. So uh, she's so much a part of my heart. I have steeled myself to be able to talk about Lily and not cry in public because I am determined to keep my daughter's memory and life's memory alive and give purpose to it. There was a moment, Betsy, where I began to turn from Lily being a single child who experienced this to understanding I had a responsibility to millions of children that were attending schools all over the United States who felt the way Lily did, and my programs mattered to them and to their livelihoods. And so I was determined to sort of care about them as well as an executive director's responsibility. So that helped me rise to the professional degree that I have risen. Uh, But the mom part of me is the part where whenever I got lost over the last few years having to make decisions about what's best for Beyond Differences, I would just close my eyes, think about Lily, what she would need, what she would want, what would have been better for her when she was their age, and it never fails to help me see the light.
0: Mm. That's really quite beautiful. And I, I understand that notion of, on one hand, it's painful to remember, on the other hand, a refusal to forget. That That's the pain point that when we've suffered tragic loss that we live in, right? And I think that some people do choose to just cover it over, move on, forget, put it away, tuck it away, not think about it. And other people find ways to have their the legacy of their loved one live on. And perhaps not in the way that you do towards really your your profession and your everyday life. But we've had other guests on this very program. I'm thinking of Lonnie and Sandy Phillips, whose daughter was murdered in the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting. And they have, they have survivors empowered. They've built a nonprofit organization to prevent gun violence and to help survivors of it. So I know that I, I would love to have dinner sometime and have you all over <laughs> because I think you would, love you, would, that. you would really understand one another. And, and that is not to say that everyone that has a loss needs to start an organization, but no. to say that in whatever way we can find a way to honor the memory that we have and to use it to help others is even in even in our just personal conversations with others who may have suffered a similar loss. Well, I want to thank you, Laura Telma, so much for not only this time on the Morning Glory Project, for, but for the amazing work that you're doing. These children whose names I do not know The children in my community, in my state, in my country that you are helping to affect is helping to build a better society that I get to live in and that my children and potential grandchildren will grow up in. And so I'm exceedingly grateful for the work you do. And I want to thank you for this time and for what you've done and for what your family has done for for kids in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, after leaving a conversation with one of my guests on the Morning Glory Project, this one, Laura Talmas, I'm moved and in awe of how people make it through what they make it through. Losing a child is every parent's worst nightmare, really. And to endure that, but not just to endure it, to then make meaning of it, It made me really wonder, in terms of the extra blooms for me, what in my life that might be painful or joyful for that matter, what can I do to make meaning of that? For myself and for others around me, for some people it's like it is with Laura and that she made an organization of it. And for some of it, it's just about opening our hearts to neighbors or friends or family or loved ones or acquaintances or our community or our teachers or our kids simply by sharing the story. It's a pretty nice extra bloom. I'm so impressed by what Beyond Differences does, and you can find out more about it by going to beyonddifferences.org. So that's going to have two Ds in the middle of it, one word, but all smooshed together like websites are beyonddifferences.org and find out whether you can contribute. Maybe you've got a few extra nickels in the couch cushions you can toss their way, or maybe you can contribute in a way in your own community, helping to bring the work that they do to your schools. That's some pretty good extra blooms for the day. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project, and we treasure the gift of your time. And we hope for you to have a beautiful opportunity to bloom.